With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., On Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of May 23rd, 2016. On today's show, we'll talk about what, if anything, is wrong with the Golden State Warriors. We'll be joined for that segment by Ethan Sherwood-Strauss of ESPN. We'll then talk to Jason Klein of the minor league baseball team naming firm Brandios. They're the minds behind the Iron Pigs, the Rubber Ducks, the Flying Squirrels. They're currently renaming the Binghamton Mets AA farm team. And finally, we'll talk to Greg Howard of the New York Times about the launch of the ESPN website, The Undefeated. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. I'm going to change my last name to the Blue Wahoos, which was another one of their, their names. You're a Pel- mm-hmm. Pelican, do or die. It's true. I'm not a shucker. I'm a Pelican. Mike, do you know the, the words to the song? I'm not a shucker, I'm yes. a pelican. Pelham pelicans, pelham pelicans. Aw, oh, shucks, we're not the shuckers. I hate them. Fuck those fuckers. Pelham <laughs> pelicans. That's the uh, more of the racy, the race album version of the song on the B-side of a Red Fox routine. Mike Pesca is the host of Slate's Daily Podcast, The Gist. And in our bonus segment this week, we are going to talk about an article that was in The Undefeated during its launch week on how we should deal with quotes, what we should do when Kevin Durant says, for example, he's a idiot when referring to Mark Cuban. Sign up for Slate Plus if you want to hear this segment. And if you want to hear bonus segments on other Slate podcasts, you can sign up and get a free two-week trial at slate.com slash hangout plus. On Sunday night in Oklahoma City, the Thunder beat the Warriors 133 to 105 to go up two to one in the Western Conference Finals. I don't really love the phrase wasn't as close as the score would indicate, but I think it's a valid 
phrase to use for this game, uh, the lead got up there. It was it was a lot more than twenty eight. The, <laughs> the score doesn't even indicate that it was that close. It does not. Um, Ethan Sherwood Strauss of ESPN.com writes about the Warriors. He was there. What's up, Ethan? Hey, hey guys. Yeah, I, I can say that because I was there. The score was larger at what point? <laughs> at what point? You know, and it, it ended. It ended at a smaller score. I can say that I was there. So we've got a guy who was there. So another question that only a guy who was there can answer, and only a guy who has been following the Warriors all year long could answer is, what the hell, man? (laughs) What's going on with this team? And do you feel like this game was just a blip or are there problems? I think this is what's fun about the playoffs where we're not sure if we're overreacting or if we're just reacting. And you'll always have somebody trying to play the, the side of savvy. They're almost like the political pundits who fancy themselves serious and above the fray, who say, no, no, things are fine. Don't overreact, don't overreact. And then the season is over. And so I don't want to underrate what's going on. At the same time, every championship team or almost every championship team has a moment like this, a moment of extreme doubt a moment where you don't know if they're truly going to regain their form. The Warriors indeed had two of them last year when they went down 1-2 against the Grizzlies and down 1-2 against the Cavs. Uh, but in the case of this particular series, other than the Thunder being damned good, uh, there, there are a few issues. One of them is that Steph Curry doesn't totally look like himself since coming back from his knee sprain. He still has pain in it. He has not said that he's 100%. I don't think he really had the burst last night to beat big men off the dribble and to really uh, get the space that he needs off switches. Also, the Thunder are just so talented that when the Warriors went to their death lineup, their small ball lineup with Draymond Green at center, uh, the Thunder pushed that lead in the first half, I believe, uh, from 13 to 25 at the close and then piled on more in the second half uh, because it's such a great asset when part of your, quote, small ball look is the seven-foot Kevin Durant um, at, at power forward in Serge Ibaka, who's also quite mobile. So the Thunder have a small ball look that can, at least in games, counteract what the Warriors are doing. And really, I thought also the Warriors foolishly chased defensive rebounds in that small ball look because they were fighting for rebounds, or offensive rebounds, I should say, and that opened them up to transition defense attack. And finally, I think the Warriors have a sick defensive setup for containing the Thunder, and they went away from it one minute into the game after Curry picked up a foul. So what is that setup, and what did they go to as an alternate? Okay, because I was worried I was getting too granular there. I was a little bit worried about that. No, no, we like the granules. Go. Okay, so I'll nerd out. Here's the setup. Uh, the Thunders' best defensive wing is Andre Robertson. Uh, he's an iffy three-point shooter. So they start games with Robertson at shooting guard. The Warriors do not regard him as a shooting guard who shoots. They do not guard him. And they actually have Andrew Bogut uh, with the assignment on Robertson. So a center guarding a shooting guard. And all he does is hang out in the paint. He invites Robertson to shoot. So he's in the paint. Then you also have Draymond Green guarding Steven Adams. Steven Adams doesn't shoot, so Draymond Green, when he's not accidentally kicking Steven Adams in the nuts, is sagging off him on defense, so he's around the paint. Clay Thompson, a shooting guard, is guarding Serge Ibaka, uh, because Serge Ibaka essentially acts like a shooting guard, even though he's a center-slash-power forward, and can't really punish Thompson in that way, and he's not 
a great three-point shooter, so Thompson is sagging off of him. So basically there's nothing in the paint. The only weakness, perhaps, is that your star player and perhaps least imposing defensive player, Steph Curry, is the one chasing Westbrook around, but I still think the benefits outweigh that particular con. Uh, But one minute into the game, Curry bit on a Westbrook pump fake, and I thought Kerr, who's done an amazing job in these two seasons, did not coach a good game. Uh, He immediately, uh, when I looked courtside, leapt up and yelled out to uh, Steph to switch the coverage and to guard Robertson in order to uh, not incur any more risk of getting another foul. And then the Thunder were off to the races from there. So I think the Warriors abandoned the defense that was best for them, and I think it really hurt them. The Warriors did come back. It was, what, 42-40 to or 40-40, and then... That moment in the game when you're watching is in typical Warriors games. You go, oh, okay, this is now reverting to form, and they will be up by 13 at half, and we'll be on our way to what is supposed to happen. But the exact opposite happened. The Warriors also didn't shoot particularly well last night. I mean, not particularly well. They shot not well. Yeah, they and really, I think a lot of that was missing open shots, which is going to happen from time to time, and I think in the Memphis series and the Cavs series, you have this variance when it comes to three-point shooting, um, and the the old cliche that coaches use, make or miss league, is pretty true, uh, where, and you can't tell, you can't tell readers this, you can't tell fans this, because it sounds like you're making excuses, but sometimes they shoot shots that are there, and those shots, they miss, and I thought offensively, even though Kerr was criticizing the quick shots, that, that, that was the term that everybody yeah. used. Curry was using that too, quick shots. And Clay Thompson said the same thing. We, didn't, we were impatient. We took quick shots. Yeah, I don't really buy that. I think those shots are fine, and I, I see just a totally different reality where they take all those quick shots and those shots go in, and nobody has any issue with them. Uh, the real problem, I think, wasn't so much the offensive execution. It was the transition defense where they got roasted. Maybe it was such a blowout there was no turning point in Game 3. But two and a half minutes left in the first half. The score was hovering in the low double digits. And I said to myself, all right, the Warriors need to get this to, you know, single digits. Eight, go in at halftime, got a shot. And it went to, you know, 23. And during that sequence, there were Warriors had clear breaks to the basket. But boom, the Thunder would come and block it. And everything the Thunder wanted to do, just, you know, Durant charging down the lane and dunking. And I said to myself, my God, I'm not saying the Warriors don't want it more or aren't uh, hustling, but it does seem that the Thunder are just jumping out of the gym. Now, my question is, did it seem that way to you? Or if a guy gets blocked at the rim, well, then the explanation is going to be that the blocker was hustling more, showing more energy. But, I mean, I just sense that there was a lot more intensity on the Thunder side during that minute, and then the game got out of reach. Yeah, and the Warriors were a bit flat, and a lot of people's take on the game was one of the Warriors gave up. I don't know if I necessarily felt that way. I don't think that every time you get your ass kicked, it's for lack of effort. Sometimes the other team gets rolling, and especially in that building. That building's an incredible place to just watch a basketball game in. Uh, The atmosphere, it's just so galvanized. And, you know, I think the Thunder derive a lot of of energy from that, especially when things are going well. Um, So I I do think that it's a bit of both. I do think the Warriors... uh, perhaps didn't bring a lot of their energy, and maybe they lost their composure. They don't love being refed by Scott Foster and Tony Brothers. I think they went in 
going, oh, shit. You know, they, <laughs> I think, I'm trying to remember, they've had six of nine playoff losses with Scott Foster refing, and I don't believe there's any bias, but I do believe that teams um, often buy into that and often worry when they get certain refs, and then when a, a series of events happen and they don't like certain calls, whether it's the shot clock violation that wasn't, um, whether it's getting the uh, flagrant one retroactively applied, um, then they can assume that the sky is falling and play worse from there. So I think that might have been a factor, too. Draymond Green had a really fascinating game um, last night in a negative sense. <laughs> Every Everything that he does well, typically, to make this team the team that it is, kind of he did the opposite. He didn't finish around the rim repeatedly. And then, you know, when you see this kind of vision of an undersized guy who, you know, the most notable thing that he did was kick somebody in the nuts. You're like, wow, this guy, uh, you know, he's he's smaller than everybody else. He's kind of not able to finish layups. Uh, he's not He's not really hitting from outside. You sort of see why you know, 34 teams or 34 uh, places before he got drafted. That is obviously extremely unfair and a dumb response. But, I mean, this was just a terrible game from him and I think just a huge contrast from what he usually provides to this team. He was also getting blown by uh, by Dion Waiters at points of the game. It was the worst game of his career. Uh, I'm, maybe I can say that without equivocation. I think it was the worst game of his career, especially when you throw in that nut shot where things really went off the rails from there. So, you know, and I, and I wouldn't say that it speaks to why teams passed over him. I think there tends to be this uh, incumbency uh, that we do with NBA players where if you get drafted high, we will assume that you have some untapped talent, even if you suck. And if you get drafted low, we're constantly going to look for reasons to validate that initial assessment. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he was truly awful, and he knows that, and uh, he spoke to that, and sometimes Draymond Green is bad. And I'm not sure if it's because Steven Adams is kicking his ass in certain ways or just that's that's how it goes in a small sample size. But but he was awful, and again, uh, the most fascinating thing that he did was this bizarre leg kick to the nuts that we're analyzing like the Zapruder film. I mean, it's a testament to how bad things went. A testament to the testicles. Um, We are speaking before the NBA announces whether or not Draymond Green is going to get suspended. He was assessed with a flagrant one foul. Um, He was on the court and you could read his lips saying, I'm going up. I'm not trying to kick him in the nuts. Everyone seemed to agree on TNT after the game that it was inadvertent, but he was also trying to sell contact to draw a foul um, and that that very well could be a cause for a one-game suspension. Your colleague Tom Haberstroh did a, a very, very thorough history <laughs> of, the, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of the groinal contact uh, issue in the NBA. W- what did you make of it courtside and do you think this is suspension worthy? Well, what increasingly fascinates me about the way sports are analyzed is how retroactive it is and how people with creeping determinism convince themselves that they felt a way that they didn't feel actually at the time. At the moment it happened, nobody knew what happened. Right. You know, if, if people are saying it was so obvious. It was so obvious it's so blatant. They didn't feel that way when, at the moment of impact, Stephen Adams went down. I remember, uh, as I rewatched the game last night, the announcers were wondering if it was his thumb. It was not his thumb. Spoiler <laughs> alert. Um, 
So my, my take on it upon seeing these replays, and when you use slow-mo replays, I think people interpolate uh, an amount of intent that's not necessarily there. Uh, I think that Draymond was trying to sell the foul, and he was adamant about that after the game. And obviously he's an unreliable narrator because he wants a certain outcome from all of this. I thought it was also interesting. His voice was quavering a bit, like a man who was under interrogation. Yeah. Um, so no, he was that, pinned against the wall in the hallway. It looked like for that interview. Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of uh, last year. Uh, it's sort of a similar incident. The few people remember when we were in Dallas and uh, Sean Livingston was guarding uh, Dirk Nowitzki, and his hand went from behind Dirk and reached up and hit him in the nuts. And it was another situation where nobody knew what happened, but then they played it on the jumbotron, and the crowd just went crazy with rage and just were insane with rage and Livingston was on the defense and after the game actually um he was up against the wall and just plaintiff with his with his hands up so I didn't I didn't mean to do it and then Iguodala who loves sort of uh, tweaking the racial situations of the NBA shouted into the scrum look how they got the black man over there <laughs> and just <laughs> it was just an absurd scene um completely uh, which I asked Livingston about after the game, and yes, he noted that it was a little bit similar, where you know everybody thinks you did it, and even if you didn't mean to, people are going to assume things. And with Draymond, he hasn't bought himself much goodwill with a lot of people, because right after that happened, and right after he got the flagrant one, he actually went up to the jeering uh, Thunder fans and was sort of egging them on like a pro wrestler. So with that attitude, it's no wonder that people will... Uh, look to your possible worst intentions. But if I had to guess, I think that, you know, the leg kicked up. And uh, it's so interesting to me, the situation we have and the legalese that we debate with the NBA where people are saying because Dante Jones got suspended for a possibly accidental shot to uh, Bismack Biombo's groin, that therefore the NBA has to suspend Draymond Green, uh, which is really interesting when you look at it in a macro sense, because... Ultimately, what this means is, in the case of Dante Jones, he doesn't play. He only plays in garbage time. So he was suspended for a game, which means nothing because he doesn't play. Um, and his fine is $80.17. <laughs> that is the literal fine that, that he is incurring because uh, he was signed to a brief contract, and it's just part of your contract. So he's essentially gotten fined a parking ticket and for that reason, we need to decide possibly the Western Conference Finals and maybe even the championship. And then when you look back in a macro sense, what ends up happening is that a Cavs player, Dante Jones, hits a guy in the nuts, and therefore it sets a precedent that knocks out a team the Cavs would prefer not to play potentially and helps them get a more favorable matchup. I find that to be a fascinating, absurd outcome, if that is indeed the outcome to all of this. Can I just make a point, which is that in New York City, parking tickets are like $225. Oh, man. I feel <laughs> yeah. like you're bragging. I feel like that's a little bit of a brag. <laughs> it is, but kneeing a guy in the crotch is free. You know what? Dante Jones doesn't live in New York City. Let's be clear. <laughs> I actually, it's to, to transition to the Cavs very briefly, but I am a huge LeBron fan. I want them to win. Um, I want him to win a title in Cleveland. I really started to question my fandom for that team when they signed Dante Jones because I hate that guy. <laughs> He's the guy who comes on the team in like April, immediately has like the most elaborate handshakes with every player, is the first one off the bench. He's like wants you to notice him 
And then he doesn't ever play, and he just punches Bismack Biombo in the grind. <laughs> I cannot support a team that countenances uh, this guy. Josh, how do you know that wasn't just one of the elaborate handshakes? Can you really prove that? Yeah. <laughs> over no, over no, and, dapper Dante Jones. And <laughs> if you go back and read Tom Haberstroh's story, you will see that there are very uh, that there is a tradition in the NBA of the of the ball tap. Mm. As being a, a a ritual. Oh, so teams. he's just a traditionalist. He's a traditionalist. That reminded me of the ball tap from the old St. Louis Hawks. No, um, <laughs> so when you watch the Thunder, Ethan, and this has kind of been something that's said about them for years now. When they play really well, you're like, well, this is obviously the greatest collection of talent that anyone has ever <laughs> seen. And the question was about coaching, and they play iso ball. They don't play team ball like the Spurs. Or the Warriors, um, and just watching Game Three, you're just like, maybe they, they've figured it out. Are they are they playing more together as a team, or um, is this just kind of you know back to what we were talking about before? Is this just an outlier? Is this a home court game? Did the Warriors just shoot badly? It does just when you watch a performance like that, it's just hard not to leap to conclusions, though. Yeah, well, they are playing a lot better. They're playing like a 65-win team, the Thunder are, and Billy Donovan has made some decisions that make them a more formidable squad. He, late in the season, started staggering minutes, so he reduced the amount of times that the court would be absent Westbrook or Durant. They would always have at least one on the floor, so that made them better. And now in this particular case, he's unleashed Durant at power forward, which Durant doesn't love doing, but it's certainly a strong option and a necessary one in this series. So I think they've made proper adjustments. And, hey, here's a sports cliche. They're peaking at the right time. <laughs> you know, that's the plan like a 65-win team. That's an excellent point. So you say Golden State, they're a 73-win team. Uh, not if they were playing the Thunder every game. I mean, if you simulated a schedule where it was Golden State against OKC, a good playing OKC, you know, maybe we should only expect Golden State to win 55% of the games, or maybe we should expect a uh, six-game or, series. Or how about this? Is, is Golden State the same 73-win team right. they were in the season? I'm not convinced they were. I think They, they played 95 games. Yeah, I think they burned up a lot. Um, in chasing that particular record. And then this gets tricky because people get offended when you insinuate it might have something to do with uh, events that transpired later, and it's another situation like Draymond's kick to the nuts where you really don't know. Uh, But Curry's first injury that he suffered in the playoffs was a non-contact injury when he hurt his ankle. Typically, that speaks to some wear and tear. We can't know that for sure, just like we can't know that that injury contributed to the knee sprain that he suffered later in the first game that he came back. This is all making me pre-sad. That's a term that I like to use, Ethan. (laughs) Just pre-sad. Listening to what all the conversations are going to be if the Warriors lose and all the recriminations. Mm -hmm. I'm extremely pre-sad right now. (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I, I apologize for that, but you've hedged it well. You know, you've got LeBron or Curry. I mean, maybe you need to throw in some Thunder love as well. Um, to, to feel <laughs> decent about about what will happen. Um, but yeah, the rec- recriminations will certainly be interesting uh, if the Warriors lose. And I'm not making an excuse for them necessarily with the 73 wins thing. I just see that as a risk. Like you're heightening your risk when you chase 73 wins and when you push yourself incredibly hard at the end of the season to close it out. It's a heightened risk. It's done for understandable reasons, but I do think that probably reduces your overall um, outcome and probability for winning the championship. 
Well, the fact that the Spurs didn't play their starters big minutes, that's the reason they lost, right? Because the, they weren't uh, tuned up enough for the playoffs. The they were resting. Their guards suck. I mean, that was <laughs> a fascinating thing, too. Just because when you look at that retrospectively, just like, how did that team win 67 games? I know they had the number one defense by far, but it, it was uh, the Thunder put their talent level in stark relief. All right, Ethan, um, you got to go to Warriors practice. My last thought here is that this team hasn't had that much adversity this year. They did last year throughout the playoffs. And so if, I mean, we've talked about the hypotheticals about if they lose in the recriminations. If they win, then, you know, the fact that they had to come back from the depths here against the Thunder will make it a more impressive accomplishment, will make it a more exciting series and exciting championship. So they're going to be tested. And I think as a fan, I'm really excited to see what happens the rest of the series. And if they make it through, bully for them. Yeah, that's what makes the playoffs fun are these moments of doubt. And it's certainly more entertaining. Hell, it'd be entertaining as they lost. If they ultimately got bounced out and we had to have that recrimination fest, that would also be entertaining as well and certainly more compelling than what many people assumed. I think in sports we often conflate probability with inevitability. I think a lot of people thought this would be easy. It's not, and it's all the more entertaining for it. Ethan Sherwood-Strauss writes about the Warriors for ESPN. Thanks, Ethan. Thanks for having me, guys. The Binghamton Mets have long been known as the Binghamton Mets. Kind of a bland nickname. I'm a Mets fan. Sort of become mildly, 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 extra triple mildly attached to the name Binghamton Mets. But you know what? I'm open to a change. And there's going to be a significant change because the six choices for a possible nickname for the Binghamton Mets are, Stefan, the Bullheads, the Gobblers, the Rocking Horses, the Rumble Ponies, the Stud Muffins, and the Timber Jockeys. The New York Times ran a piece about this uh, naming change and quoted a guy named Dave Skull who says, I don't have a problem with the name change, but the names are absurd. Well, it sounds like you do have a problem with the name change, sir. Um, And then they quoted another guy saying, the choices seem really odd. They say they are a part of Binghamton history. I've lived there all my life and I've never heard of any of these terms. So the naming contest, it's open online. Deadspin ran an item that says, only you can help saddle this minor league baseball team with a dumb name. Very opinionated. So uh, we have with us on the line, Jason Klein. He is the founder, owner, operator of Brandios. They are the firm that is running this name change. Jason, how are you? Great, great. Thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. And how do you feel, Jason? I just, you know, read out to you these very angry fans, very passionate, we might, we might label them. Sure, sure, yeah. People who say that these names are dumb. Like, how do you react to that? Well, you know, people always come to us and they say, um, you know, you work with a lot of sports teams, and part of that is, you know, coming up with names and mascots and logos, and don't you real, uh, really feel offended when people don't um, like what you come up with? Don't you feel bad when they hate what you create? And um, we're always, you know, our, our response is always that we don't feel bad when they hate it. We, we feel bad when they're apathetic about it. You know, we, the, the part of the process is to create something that people talk about, that gets people talking, that, that's remarkable and, and that people talk about. Um, and uh, the worst thing is not when they hate something that you do. It's the worst thing is when they're apathetic. And I think that that's, you know, the unfortunate part of 
the sports world is there's you know hundreds and hundreds of minor league baseball teams and hundreds of major league baseball teams and 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 NFL and hockey and soccer and you know when you're a small minor league baseball team that doesn't have a million dollar advertising budget you kind of have to cheat and part of that is to get people uh talking and debating and having a conversation uh about your your team name and uh, the best way to do that is to come up with something that gets people uh talking about it Right, like the flying squirrels or the yard goats or other various names that you've come up with and that, uh, that that's sort of been part of the revolution in minor league baseball, which started in the mid-1980s. Uh, our colleague Alan Siegel wrote a piece for Slate last year, and it does seem to me, Jason, about, about your company, and it does seem to me that there is kind of a formula here. You mentioned the sort of idea of generating interest pro or con in this process of picking a team name. You want to get people interested in the team, but there's also seems like there's a wearing down process. It's sort of like the Republicans' acceptance of Donald Trump. Everyone <laughs> hates it. Everyone then starts talking about it. And then everyone comes around to the proposition that, oh, we can live with this. And then not Trumpian analysis here. People actually embrace it. Yeah, well, our process is actually built around the original process of uh, of naming teams that goes back even before the 90s, back to the, the 1800s. And um, my favorite story is it's post-Civil War. Troops on both the North and the South had gotten these great German cigars that were imported uh, during the Civil War. And... Um, you know, got a taste of these great cigars. So when the war was over, uh, and people started thinking about what they were going to be doing, uh, the community of Wheeling, West Virginia, decided that they were going to be in the cigar rolling business. And so very quickly, your father, your grandfather, uh, everybody uh, in your, your, your family was rolling cigars. And when baseball came around and you were going to have a, you know, a local team, and, and part of it was um, you know, the industry workers, some of it was local, some of it was... Um, you know, people who are semi-professional uh, as much as you could be at the time, you were the Wheeling Stogies, and you played in the same league as the Grand Rapids Furniture Makers because that's what they were doing up in, in Grand Rapids. And nowadays we look back at the names, the Stogies and the Furniture Makers, as really funny, um, you know, tongue-in-cheek names, but they were very serious names at the time. Um, you know, you, you, you know, you know, when you were from Wheeling, the idea of of the Stogies represented the heart and soul and the, you know, why you were existence as a, as a community. And when you went to battle on the field with, uh, uh, you know, the furniture makers, it was about my town versus your town and in, in, in ways of life. And so what we're trying to do is, is really bring back that original core um, approach and getting people um, excited about team names. You know, obviously the, the Binghamton Mets, was named after the parent club, and we're seeing a, a huge trend back to names that um, are, you know, tied to the hometown in a way that promotes the kind of family fun entertainment that uh, the minor league baseball teams are known for. I noticed that the really good celebrated minor league names are very much like the names that college students come up with when there is a referendum to name the team a la the banana slugs. And yet when yeah. officially a college goes about naming the teams, it's all bulldogs and eagles and bullshit. So I'm wondering if like, it tells us anything that the, uh, that the much lauded naming pros of Brandios are more like uh, – College students trying to have a LARF. Yeah, I think so. I think that has a, that's a good commentary on the idea of naming and the idea that 
fear is so rampant in all of our lives that, you know, we're so motivated by fear. We, we have a fear of looking foolish. We have a fear of, of being called out. We have a fear of any kind of, fear of, any kind of criticism. Um, and um, we just were so afraid, and I think, I think as human beings, and, oh gosh, we might get ridiculed. They might say negative stuff about us. They might get, you know, um, you know, call us out. They might troll us. They might do this. And so we're paralyzed by making any kind of interesting creative decisions. And there's, um, you know, there's this, this, this sense of, like, we can't be creative whatsoever. Or we can't do anything that's going to cause unwanted attention, even if it brings us even more positive attention. And it goes back to my original comment, which is um, apathy is the worst thing, is that people look at the name and they go, okay, I get it. And they drag it into their folder on their mental hard drive that says things that I get and I don't need to ask any questions about. I don't need to you know, look further. I don't need any more introspection. We're the wildcats, we're the bulldogs, we're the lions, we're the bears. You know, I, I get what that is. I don't have to, you know, nothing to see here. And um, I mean, a lot of what we, we get in terms of our thought processes from Seth Godin, and, you know, he has a classic line, which is, you know, no one stops to see a brown cow on the side of the road. You know, if you see a brown cow or, you know, uh, you just, okay, I've seen a million brown cows, I don't have to stop. But all of a sudden, if there was a purple cow on the side of the road, you would stop and you would say, hey, mom, dad, look, look, there's a purple cow outside. We have to stop and see the purple cow. And I think that's a metaphor for um, team names. It's a metaphor for creativity. Um, it's a metaphor for... Uh, just how boring things can be in life. And, you know, we're so used to uh, being brown cows that, you know, if the chance yes. comes along and someone says, oh, what, what if we were the purple cows? People would be like, we're going to get ridiculed. We're going to get, you know, made fun of, you know, let alone the fact that everybody's going to be, you know, interested in what we're doing and want to, you know, learn all about why we're the purple cows. Um, let's just fit in. Let's not make any noise. Let's be forgettable. Um, and mediocrity is rampant. This segment has been brought to you by Williams College. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so walk through some of these nicknames. We have bullheads, gobblers, rocking horses, rumble ponies, stud muffins, and timber jockeys, and the guy quoted in the Time story is like, I've never heard of any of these. I'm from Binghamton. But you would argue that these are actually central to the Binghamton uh, identity. And you would argue that you guys are really historians, here you're yeah, helping communities we, go back into their into their roots yeah it's a great there's a great deal of cultural anthropology involved in this process so for example um, not only do we ask the fans to submit names that they think are representative of the community but also the backstories on why those names represent binghamton and um, and sometimes the the names uh, are pretty good but the backstories are even better and um you know, the goal for all of this is to create this immersive experience. So a great example is in Rancho Cucamonga, they're the Quakes. It's a team in California. Um, you play at the Epicenter. Uh, you uh, buy merchandise at the Richter store. There's mascots, Tremor and Aftershock. So everything is reinforcing everything else, and it's this immersive experience um, that you're transported into, like, you know, earthquake world. So from that perspective, the world that we're trying to create is one that will resonate with the, the citizens of Binghamton. But Jason, so you're making us wait way too long to learn what Stud Muffin has to do with Binghamton. <laughs> okay, so uh, there's a couple of things. One is, you know, uh, obviously it's the carousel capital of the world. That's obviously. a huge thing. 
Yeah, so uh, if you didn't know that, um, there are multiple carousels, and they're all free, and everybody knows about them. It's, you know, you grew up on them. Um, you know, a male horse is a stud, uh, so uh, we thought, hey, you know, the stud muffins would be a great name um, from that list. Uh, the rumble ponies, hey, uh, you know, um, you know, part of this challenge is, is there a way to make a carousel, which is, uh, for a lot of people, sort of old-fashioned and a little bit um, grandmotherly in a way, uh, cool. So, you know, when you have, uh, you know, some horses ready to rumble, uh, there's, you know, that approach. The gobblers was, uh, you know, hunting is huge in the area, turkey hunting, so that's where that came from. Uh, the rocking horses, the same vein, the timber jockeys. If you are a jockey that rides a wooden horse, then you are a, a timber jockey, and uh, you know, those are so how, how the names came about. I get it. And the bullhead is a uh, is a catfish. The Syracuse.com has a breakdown that I'm looking at right now of these names. And I got to say, they're very creative. And I'm and I'm trying to do a sort of archaeological analysis, or maybe it's a sociological <laughs> analysis of the process. And the process yeah. seems to be you do some historical research, you pull out some salient facts about a community, but then you tweak that fact to make it something that is a little bit outrageous and that also will make for a good logo and T-shirt design. You, you hit on the right, the right point. Is, is You want something that's a little unexpected. So a great example is uh, the Akron Rubber Ducks. They are in the, um, you know, Akron's the rubber capital of the world. Uh, good years there, good riches there. Uh, the idea is, is that, um, you know, you are uh, celebrating everything rubber. Well, a rubber duck, when you first hear the name, you think, okay, this is a squeaky toy, Bert and Ernie, your bathtub. But what we did was flip the logo on the head. So when you hear the name, you say, I got to see that logo. And the logo is this, you know, duck with galvanized rubber and, you know, flames. And it's, uh, <laughs> it's a very tough-as-nails type of logo. It's a so, killer rubber duck. Yeah. yeah. It's a killer rubber duck. And when you think of Chihuahua, you know, as a, as a name for, the, you know, the, the team in El Paso, before the Chihuahuas came along, people had a context of, you know, uh, Paris Hilton's dog, or they had the context of, you know, the Yokiero Taco Bell dog. And this is not an uh, um, animal you would bring to a, a fight, but, uh, you know, our Chihuahua is, you know, scrappy. He's got a scar through his eye. He's got a bite taken out of his ear. So he's sort of the Oakland Raiders of minor league baseball in that regard. Yeah, so, he, was, he, was, he was Michael yeah. Vick's Chihuahua. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Could have been, could have been, but you know, I think that also is a is a great metaphor for the community of El Paso. Is here's a town that, but you know, beforehand didn't get a lot of respect. It was an underdog town. Um, you know, its community is feisty. It's fiercely loyal. Um, it, it's bilingual. So you know, the El Paso Chihuahuas is a great fit. Um, and you're right. The name is something. When you hear the name, you go, "Wait, what? Wait, I got to see this logo." And it lures you in. To the experience, and, and that's what we really want is this, this a, a name that lures you in and wants you to ask questions and to investigate and to learn more and say, I got to see this logo. Would you say that minor league names, and you guys are geniuses and I love what you do, but there is a freedom 
insofar as they're never going to be major league names. And when I think about naming a band, there are a lot of small indie bands that have wild names. But I say to myself, are you ever really going to become the Beatles with that name or the Rolling Stones or even you two, such as you are named Lubricated Goat? So I wonder <laughs> if you think that um, it would be harder to name a major league team the Gobblers or the Rocking Horses or the Flying Squirrels, and if that's an okay thing. Um, I think... It would be harder, but I think for the same reasons that there's just more at stake, and so people feel like they're just, you know, there's more to be afraid of. Um, you know, one of the great benefits of being a major league team is that, you know, you're always going to get press on Sports Center. You know, you're always going to be talked about. You're always going to get airtime. You're always going to get the limelight. Um, you know, the question is, is, is there a benefit uh, when you don't have 100 years and, you know, 27 world championships and, you know, is, is there a benefit to doing something outrageous that America just can't not pay attention to you? Um, you know, on a minor league level, there's 160 teams. So the idea of standing out when somebody talks about the type of teams in minor league baseball and the, and the you know, the interesting team names, uh, you know, to our conversation about press coverage, they're going to pick, you know, the five interesting team names and uh, the other 155 teams uh, aren't going to get that publicity. Um, if there's a benefit, you know, at a major league level for one team to always be talked about on a national level alongside, um, you know, the Yankees and the Red Sox and some of the other traditional ones, um, then I think that would absolutely be a great idea. I mean, the, the thing is, there's always going to be that middle ground. It's going to be this, this funky weird middle ground where it's the last, you know, it's the, it's the name, if I said list uh, all the Major League Baseball teams, it's the last three teams that you remember. So, yeah, I think if, uh, if a Major League team adopted the same philosophy, they'd probably be in the top five. And there's an economic value, there's a, a hometown pride value, and um, there's a, a legacy value to that. So when I read the coverage of the Binghamton name, just because I had talked to you before, Jason, and because we ran that piece on Slate, I was aware that this was a process that was playing out that had played out for you guys in the exact same way in so many different markets that you guys will come up with these names that the local press will get hold of them. They'll say, these are outrageous, just like Stefan said before. And I kind of... I mean, as a journalist, I came away thinking, like, these guys are falling for it. Like, this is kind of, you know, what Brandios does. And um, it felt to me like, and especially with Deadspin saying, like, you can saddle this team with a dumb name. Like, you guys use the naming contest to generate interest, to generate ideas. But you never say that you're, like, beholden to what the fans choose. So I don't know, like, do you feel like the press should cover you in a different way? Like, are you happy with the attention? Like, should people be savvier about what's going on here? Yeah, I think um, that's, a, that's a very interesting point. You know, the... Oh, I'm trying to think how to, how to attack that question. Yeah, it is a process that is... You know, if you're a conservative sports fan, if you are... You know, hey, when we were in Richmond, they were the Richmond Brave for 25 years. And then we come along and say, hey, you know, this team is going to be called uh, the Flying Squirrels. Um, you know, there was a great moment at the unveiling where uh, the president of the club, Chuck Domino, addressed the media. And he said, you know, there's been a lot of you um, in the media here, I'd like to address you, that have been asking whether or not we're in the baseball business or the circus business. He says, I want to be very clear. 
we're in the circus business. And it was a great moment which showed that here is a town and a, and a team that doesn't, you know, the team doesn't have a million-dollar sports advertising budget. It uh, has to find a way to get attention. Um, you know, we're not in charge of the, uh, the product on the field. We can't change the product. We can't promote the players because they're going to move up and down the system. All we have is the fun and the excitement and the promotions and the entertainment that happens in the stands. And if we're going to get, you know, cut above this clutter and we don't have any money to do it, um, you know, uh, we got to find a way to sort of to get around that. So it is it is designed um, to generate publicity. That's what we're trying to do. We want people to get you know passionate and excited and to you know to experience what's going on. And um, I, I I don't know if I would use the word fall for it. I don't think that that's fair. I think that it's you know. Um, you know, hey, we can all agree the way the media works is they're looking to generate interest in what they. We're all do. trying to generate interest, right? We're all trying to generate interest. <laughs> We're trying to generate interest. The media is trying to generate interest, and so um, you know, hey, do you think the Stud Muffins should be the name of the next you know Mets Double A club? Is a great headline, and people are going to want to learn more. Yeah. And I think that that that's um, serving its purpose. But I also feel like in uh, sort of deconstructing the approach. There's always one in there among the candidate names that you know is not going to wind up being the name of the team. They're not going to be the Binghamton Stud Muffins. I think Timber Jockeys, frankly, is going to be the winner here. Just saying. We'll see what happens. We got enough fish and birds, as I will talk about later on the show. Um, so there is that that sort of that that decoy in, in the yeah. lineup, which yeah. gets yeah. those headlines and gets people pulled in. Yeah, so I think back in the day, so so that's fair. Back in the day, we did have that conversation, which is, you know, 90% of these names are a little off the wall. Like, you know, should we have a little fun with ourselves, you know, and, and poke fun of ourselves and, and add something in there that's a little even more off the wall? Uh, but that's changed. You know, as in the past couple of years, we realize these names are so um, unique and they generate buzz on their own. It may be a waste of a perfectly good slot in a in a list of names to add uh, a name like that. So um, maybe in the beginning we did that. I think now we actually had it. We actually had a conversation between Casey and I, which was, "Hey, you know, th- these names don't need anything else. They're 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 buzzworthy enough on their own. Let's not try to add something in there that's, um, you know, uh, even more out there just for the sake of it." So you're referring to Casey White, who's your partner in the uh, in the company, and That's I was correct, just yeah. wondering, these names are unique, and the teams that you guys have come up with the names for the Iron Pigs, the Flying Squirrels, the Rubber Ducks, the Yard Goats, etc., the Stud Muffins. Um, you don't really hear names like that, but do you ever worry that this is kind of a weird way to phrase it, but? Are your teams all kind of different in the same sort of way? Like, are you worried about, like, having a kind of quirky formula where it's like, oh, well, that's obviously a brandiose team because they have this name that's silly in this particular way? Are you kind of worried that maybe at a certain point that'll run its course in minor league baseball? And a logo that's cartoonish in a particular way, that it's identifiably, they're they're identifiably sort of homogenous. It's... It's a good question. I think we've asked that question ourselves, and we asked it actually years ago, which is, you know, like, what's the future hold for this? And 
there are plenty of examples of, of you know, in the history of minor league baseball, we talked about, you know, the furniture makers and the stogies. You know, later on, we had a team that was, had a wacky name called the Mud Hens uh, in Toledo, which, you know, we all don't think of as wacky. Um, there's also some really, you know, wacky team names in pro sports that you, you don't see as wacky anymore. If I said I had this team, it's called the Fathers, you know, um, you wouldn't, uh, you'd be like, that's, that's a weird name. I don't know why you'd call it that. Um, you know, uh, and now we have the San Diego Padres or even, you know, um, a team that's named after laundry, like, uh, you know, the, the Red Sox or the White Sox. They're, you know, if you think about baseball teams in general, they're a little out there. Um, they're not, you know, the Bears. Um, they're not uh, the Lions, you know, you do have the Detroit Tigers and you have those cases of, of some more traditional names, but um, baseball has a long history of unique team names um, and they just become part of the fabric of that community over time. We don't, we don't debate why, you know, we would name a team after Sox um, or why we would name a team after um, a monk or a friar here in San Diego. It just becomes part of the cultural fabric of the community. And, um, and so I think that that's probably going to way it's going to play out here in, in minor league baseball is that, um, you know, you just root for the flying squirrels. You don't, you know, in, in Richmond, they don't think much about, you know, how controversial or out there the flying squirrels name is. And, you know, 10 years later in, in Lehigh Valley, you know, they're the iron pigs. Um, pig iron's the raw material used to make steel. They were the steel capital of America. So now you have the iron pigs. Um, but they don't, they don't think about whether or not, you know, the name is called the Iron Pigs. They're just excited that they can go get their, you know, bacon scratch and sniff t-shirt and they can get pulled pork nachos and they're going hog wild and all the things that that franchise has been able to do in terms of the fan experience. So I, it's not something that we're really concerned about um, just because there's so much history of that, um, you know, keep, you know, perpetuating itself in baseball. What's the most outrageous name that you guys have come up with? that you just sort of like the office joke, like you're never really going to name a team, you know, the elephant stockings, but it's like, it's your in joke. Uh, that never came to fruition. Yeah. You guys must sit around and come up with these, right? Um, we don't actually, that's one of the things is we, we, we make a big thing that we're not presumptuous. We wait until we visit the community before we have those conversations. Um, so yeah, we don't. I mean, one of the ones that got away was the uh, the Bowling Green Blind Cave Shrimp. Um, it was part of the name of the team contest. Um, it was uh, named after this blind, prehistoric, translucent cave shrimp that lives in the caves underneath Bowling Green, Kentucky. And uh, that's one of those where we wish, oh man, that would have been a great identity. But um, it lives on. They do a what could have been night where every year they don a. Uh, a uh, what could have been uh, cave shrimp night. So uh, that's an I, awesome that's promotion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a lot of clubs do that, and we that uh, got away. Yeah, we would have loved to be in the cave shrimp. I hope somebody is the cave shrimp down the road. Jason Klein is the man who brought us the Iron Pigs, the Flying Squirrels, and maybe the Stud Muffins. He is the founder of Brandios. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime. In August 2013, Jason Whitlock announced on a podcast with Bill Simmons that he was coming back to ESPN to launch something along the lines of a black Grantland. As Greg Howard documented in a series of pieces for Deadspin, that project never got off the ground under Whitlock's leadership. Bill Simmons, of course, is gone from ESPN. Whitlock himself is now back at Fox Sports. And The Undefeated finally launched last week, with the site now helmed by former Washington Post managing editor Kevin Merida 
and staffed with writers including Mark Spears, Jason Reed, Clinton Yates, Lonnie O'Neill, and Jesse Washington. So far, it's published a draft diary from Draymond Green, a profile of Marshawn Lynch, and a long reported feature on a lynching in Waco, Texas. Here to talk to us about The Undefeated's launch is Greg Howard. Greg is formerly of Deadspin. He's now a David Carr fellow at The New York Times. Hey, Greg. Hey. So I got a very short question for you to start and then a follow-up. Are you surprised that the site exists? No, I'm not. Because ESPN was trying to reach out to black people on their websites. And so, you know, they, they needed a black site. And, you know, it wasn't Whitlock's idea. You know, it was, it was John Skipper's idea to reach out to black readers. And so I expected them to, you know, trek on, I guess, trek forth. And the follow-up then is, are you surprised that the site looks the way it looks, has the writers that it has, and has the staff that it has, based on reading your last piece in Deadspin, which I think was in 2015, I kind of came away thinking um, that you thought the Whitlock version of the site, while it would have been terrible for readers, would have actually been more palatable for ESPN Brass than the version that exists today. Yeah. I mean, they got a lot of good writers from the Washington Post where Kevin Merida, where he was the managing editor. And so you, you have actual talent there now, you know, and, and I think it was hard for Whitlock to scrounge up a lot of talent outside of the ones that he got because no one wanted to work with them. But, you know, you have a real newsman at the helm. You know, writers saw that and respected that and, and, and flocked to that. It feels to me a little bit like a continuation of a what I think is a sensible progression for ESPN. They're sort of ditching the big name, hot take, draw attention type leaders, you know, like Simmons, like the people that have left the TV side, like Whitlock, in favor of Kevin Merritt as a serious journalist. And he's hiring other serious writers and giving serious young writers an opportunity. This seems like a smart strategy for ESPN and also like couldn't have worked out better with Whitlock flaming out. Yeah, I mean, uh, I wouldn't call ESPN smart (laughs) and I wouldn't call them overly concerned about minorities and women outside of profit, but it seems like their business strategy is in line with good and smart people. (laughs) You know, instead of putting a a splashy name like Jason Whitlock, you you go with someone who actually knows how to edit and actually has editing experience, that's wonderful, you know, and and I'm sure they uh, saved a little money in the process. And I think that's what this is about. Kevin Draper from Deadspin had a really good story about how this is one of the first times that we see ESPN's business interests lining up with what is best for its audience. And that's a profound thing. You know, generally ESPN is bad, but they have a monopoly and so it doesn't matter, you know. And so this is a really special time, I think. Um, that we're in as sports viewers. There's So I've read most of the articles on the site, and I would say that I'm glad a lot of them exist, and the ones that don't aren't failures. There's, but this always happens. You know, the, the first couple days that the site's up, they put the best stuff forward, everyone comments on it. You know, we really got to wait for a year to evaluate. And it can go in a couple directions. It can go like ESPNW, which has good content, but it almost never gets play. And sometimes you wonder, well, if that stuff's so good, why don't they give it a more prominent airing? I suppose that there are some 
efforts to forefront some of their female writers and some of their female content. Maybe that, and if that happens with their black writers, all for the better. But to some extent, you say, well, why aren't they doing this, you know, on the splash first page of ESPN itself? Specifically, there's the article about LeBron James' charity efforts, which, but for the existence of the undefeated, I don't think they'd have done because it doesn't align with, you know, it's it's pulling on Superman's cape. It's it, it doesn't align with their strategy of essentially godding up sports figures. So I'm glad that exists. But I do wonder if it'll go the essentially ghettoized route of ESPNW or if it'll go the route of Grantland, which is it's so niche. You know, Bill Simmons always talks about this, that the advertising model of ESPN is to get huge deals and then spread that out across huge properties like the NFL. And and Grantland, though small and successful, wasn't fitting in. You wonder if this, though small and successful, wasn't fitting in. Or maybe it'll be like 538, which is I have no idea if 538 helps their bottom line, but it's a player. And thank God that exists. I love 538. So who cares if it really helps ESPN as long as ESPN keeps funding it and they keep churning out decent product? Yeah, I mean, I think you could expect it to be something like 538 and um, that it'll, it'll get played sometimes on the first page. Uh, they've been given a lot of play right now on ESPN.com. I could see that fading. But also, you know, like I think there are seven staffers that were there from the start from when uh, Whitlock had the site. And they've been through hell. You know, you have like 25, 30-year-olds and even some 45-year-olds who, who were stagnating for, I think it was 33 months, something outrageous like that. And so to get someone as talented and experienced as Kevin Merida, I'm sure he got some assurances like, we're not going to touch you for a few mm-hmm. years. And I'm sure that, you know, for Kevin to go and get Washington Post staffers, one of the hottest newspapers in the country right now. You know, for someone to leave a good thing like that, they have to get assurances that it'll be a permanent-ish job, whether that is two or three years or whatever. So I think it's sort of like what 538 looks like and that I assume 538 is not a huge profit, <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know, like a huge money maker for ESPN. But um, it fills a niche and Nate Silver's allowed to do whatever he wants. And I, I assume we're going to see the same for Undefeated. So The Root used to be part of the Slate group, Henry Louis Gates's site, and yeah. now owned by Univision. I was just wondering how you felt about just the existence or the concept of a site by black people, for black people, obviously. You know, it's not um, going to be 100% about race, and um, there are folks who write for it who are not people of color. Uh, hopefully, people will read it who are not just people of color, but just like kind of the concept here, just as a journalist, does that appeal to you or do you think it's kind of weird? And as Mike said, is there a kind of potential for, you know, ghettoization? I mean, (laughs) I think having a a well-funded black site is very dope because um, black people generally don't get hired (laughs) in this industry. You know, I'm, I'm one of the few. I think, uh, Many of us know and speak to each other because that's, you know, it's not saying how tight we are more than how few of us there are. So any place that is going to hire 40 people before the site even launches and many of them are of color, I'm for that. You know, I'm for black sites, you know, talking about the world and critiquing the world through a black point of view. I don't see why it wouldn't work. But, you know, in terms of ghettoization, like ESPN, they don't have a really good track record. 
right? I mean, even Gratlin thrived as this thing that being funded by ESPN but was outside of the ESPN orbit a little bit. Their identity was sort of anti-ESPN. They were the cool kids, right, in the cafeteria. ESPNW gets no play at all. <laughs> and so I don't know what ESPN is going to do with their new black site. If I were to bet, I would bet that it would be great and they would give it a lot of play on the front page and stuff like that and, and point readers to that for a few months. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, it'd fall off and they would do something else. Or, you know, I have no faith in ESPN. I have no reason to have faith in ESPN, but this is definitely um, one of the best things that they've ever done. Grantland died, I think, not because it wasn't a success, but because Bill Simmons was contentious and confrontational with management. Um, and ESPN, whether out of spite or economics, decided to fold it. The Undefeated seems to be starting off from, as you were just saying, from a, a better foothold with a serious journalist, a grown-up who's managed people in the past, who had a prominent job at a major American metropolitan newspaper. Um, there obviously have been lots of African-American sports writers and columnists, many of them very prominent, and the opportunity for more to be hired and trained is great. The content question I have about the site is what the risks are of trying to shoehorn race into stories. And I think that one of the big features that The Undefeated ran in the first week may reflect that concern. And that was the profile of RG3, Robert Griffin III, and his failed tenure with the Washington football team. You know, Josh and I live here in D.C. It felt like Griffin kind of failed because he was a jerk and he tore his ACL and then he sucked. And I'm not quite sure where the failure to call Warren Moon up for support winds up in the hierarchy of reasons for Robert Griffin III's failure in D.C. So on a larger viewpoint, is that an issue, do you think, for stories as they're conceptualized and assigned? Hell no. <laughs> Hell no. Uh, I mean, like, you know, a, a race is a part of the world. It's a part of this country, just like gender is and, and sexuality and um, and everything. And for, you know, for, for you to act like it doesn't exist is almost always a mistake. I'm from D.C. I was a Washington fan. I'm recovering because Dan Snyder is the worst person in the world. But, you know, it, it did matter that RG3 was a good, promising black quarterback, specifically black quarterback in a black city. It did matter. I don't know if that outstripped his dickishness and, and his injuries within the organization, but I'm telling you, like, outside as a fan watching it, it did matter that he was black. And part of the narrative, whether or not it was actually true or not, but part of the thing was um, there's this black quarterback and he had the best rookie season anyone could remember, and he got supplanted relatively quickly by a white quarterback. And also, you know, you had this black quarterback who was super athletic and they were making him take chances that they weren't expecting of their white quarterback. And it's not because he was black or anything, but, you know, it definitely had a part to play in that. Greg, I just want to go back to something, a phrase that you said, thank God the undefeated exists. Uh, it's given a lot of good black journalists a job and young promising black journalists a job. And you said, uh, we don't get hired. 
from my experience, well, I want to know about your experience. It seemed the news organizations I've worked in have had outreach and they've tried to, you know, recruit black journalists. And I often hear, you know, the pool is more the problem than us extending our hand. So is the problem that once promising black journalists are ready to be hired, that the news organizations are not finding them or racist? Or is it more of a pipeline problem that they're just not, you know, going, if, if we're saying you got to go to J school, they're not going to J school? Or can you just expound on that idea? I don't particularly see a, a difference in the two. Um, I don't think that you do have to go to J school to be a journalist. I no, would, you don't have to. But yeah. these days, I mean, we, we um, get... That seems to be more the case. It shouldn't be, but it is. Yeah, I, I mean, I went and I was, uh, you know, I was recruited out of graduate school, which I will be paying off for the rest of my life. And I took a risk that most people don't have the freedom to take. And, you know, it turned into something. But, you know, that's been that was the first place I worked where they made an effort to have a diverse staff. We're not even talking about Gawker Media. Gawker Media is... is White as hell, it's male as hell, you know, it's it's a lot of white straight men working at Gawker Media. Deadspin, almost all men, but we were diverse, and that's because at the time that I came on, Tommy Craggs, a person of color, made an oh, he's here. It's Slate now. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Slate's own Tommy Craggs, who was at Deadspin. He made an effort to hire people of color. You don't see that that often. I don't think it's a pipeline problem because there are lots of people of color who write. It might feel like a pipe-like problem because you don't know their names or anything. And I think that speaks to actual recruiting policies. There are some places, like the New York Times, like the Washington Post, like Deadspin, not Gawker, that I think have reached a place where they can try to hire people of color. But I think that is a strain of idealism, maybe, that um, is a function of a sort of privilege. And you're saying you don't see it in newspaper circulation, you know, no. 10 through 50. I mean, you can't speak four, to all th- of them, four through 50. Yeah. Right. You know, I, I, you don't see it. And it's not because black people want to write less or black people are, are less talented at writing. Black people don't read. It's because there are black people who want to write and are talented and who read <laughs> who are uh, aren't getting the same looks, who aren't getting the same opportunities as white people. And you didn't see it at ESPN before this, you're saying? ESPN is actually really good with hiring minorities and um, even women. I think the problem with ESPN, it's like the number of people of color and women in power, Mm -hmm. you know, because they're the ones shaping the sensibilities of the network. And also, you know, if they're behind the camera, they're ones shaping who's in front of the camera and what they're saying and stuff. I think ESPN's a great example because you have people like Jamel Hill and Michael Smith, but you also have people like Stephen A. Smith and you have uh, people like formerly Jason Whitlock and stuff like that. And you could tell that they were, you know, Stephen A. and, and Whitlock, they were black people in front of the camera and stuff, but they were clearly being shaped by white sensibilities. They, they, were, they were often yelling about respectability politics and stuff. And I think that's mostly been disproven at this point. Like, you know. Um, you mean the pound cake argument is discredited? Is yeah. Is what you're saying? I, yeah. I, I mean, essentially. I, I, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, you know, among the circles I run in, you know, I feel like I shouldn't have to act better to be considered a human. I'm a human, you know, 
And so when you get Stephen A. Smith yelling, stay off the weed or something like that, it speaks to the same bullshit that has always happened, right? Like, you know, and we have Jason Whitlock talking about how black people need to be deserving of, you know, white respect and stuff. Get out of my face. And, and so I think you see this in a lot of different places. It's not just having black talent on air or writer or something like that. It's like, do you have people of color and minorities in positions of power where they can actually shape the publication in which they work? And I don't think you can point to that many places who do. Yeah. And where they could take stands that, you know, don't comfort the white bosses. Right. Like Jason Whitlock, who always has to go out of his way to criticize rap lyrics. Yeah. And that's I such mean, a current I, I mean, you know, with, with right. Whitlock, you know, I, I don't know, he's a weird dude. But, like, sometimes, you know, he, he'll quote rap lyrics on his Twitter and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes he's like, motherfucker this and motherfucker that. And he's a gangster. And then the next day he's talking about how rap is horrible, you know, mm-hmm. and how he's a church-going man, and he's not, but he acts like he is. And it's like, who's this for? Who are you trying to impress or placate? And it's it's, it's not black people because we see you, man, you know, and, and so who are it for? And so I guess if you can get more people who aren't beholden <laughs> to white people the way that I am, you know, having white boss and stuff like that, um, the way that Stephen A. Smith is, for example, and um, – you know, in the way that uh, those of the undefeated are not, to an extent that Kevin Merida is their boss, you know, and uh, not John Skipper. You know, the more Kevin Merida you can get in place and the more people under Kevin Merida you can get in place, that could be white people or black people or anything. You know, Latinos, Asians, it doesn't matter. The, the more people you can get under women, people of color, LGBT people, the better the coverage is going to be because mm-hmm. you're just going to have we, fewer blind spots. And we should also note that Marie Donahue is the executive in charge of The yes. Undefeated and was in charge of um, Grantland and is, um, I believe, also 538. So that's a woman in a position of power. And ESPN. At yes. ESPN yes. Yeah. yes. As well. Um, and she's interesting, too, because in my reporting, I found that um, she is a woman of power, but she wasn't particularly on board with a black site. You know, and so she's part of the reason why it took almost three years to get this off the ground. Life is a rich tapestry. Um, <laughs> she's a cheerleader now. It is, right? <laughs> um, well, thank you, Greg, for coming on this incredibly uh, non-diverse podcast. We couldn't be less <laughs> Well, we got diver- me, man. We got me. <laughs> um, always happy to have you. Um, and as Mike said, I think you really can't judge a site based on the first week, so we'll no. Keep reading, and we'll set our outlook calendar a year from now. We'll uh, we'll revisit. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, w- I will say that every site sucks when it's first launched, and it's supposed to. And the undefeated definitely does not suck already. And it's been what two days or three days. Let's see if it can continue. But yeah. every they site had that sign in their office: consecutive days of not sucking. Yeah, big yeah. three is up. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you know, it, it takes a while for a site to to understand what it is and get in the rhythm and, and develop a sensibility. And um, we're going to watch the undefeated do that. But, it you know, it started off pretty strong, man. Agreed. Greg Howard is a David Carr fellow at The New York Times. Thanks, Greg. Well, thanks for having me. All right. Now it is time for Afterballs. And Stefan spent most of the weekend studying the Wikipedia list of all minor league team mm-hmm. names. I did. Which ones do you want to nominate? Well, I'm going to talk about one – genus of minor league <laughs> nickname um, in my afterball, so we're not going to do that one. I was looking at the fish or sea creatures uh, nicknames in, in the minor leagues. 
I don't know. Let's let's choose one. We got you got your Brevard County manatees. Manatees always a good name for a team. Uh, stone crabs, the Thresher, the Daytona Tortugas. I like Tortugas. There's a loons, a crawdad, a blue claw, a wahoo. Oh, we got to go with the tortugas because they play at Radiology Associates Field. Yeah, what about the White Sands <laughs> pupfish, though? The White wait, Sands pupfish. Wait, fish. I have more thoughts on Daytona tortugas playing at Radiology <laughs> Associates Field. It's Radiology Associates Field at Jackie Robinson Ballpark. It's like, Jackie Robinson, uh, take a backseat to Radiology Associates Field, sir. All right, Mike, what's your tortuga? Ah, uh, Radiology Associates Field. The x-ray of the day. If you're in section 42, seat 13, you've won a free CAT scan from Radio. Um, on my show, The Gist, I have a segment, a uh, semi-recurring segment called Talk Show Karaoke. And the purpose of Talk Show Karaoke is to get a question that was asked on a talk show and then you are in the case of me and the gist, me, I insert myself into the talk show and say what the person should have said. Hillary Clinton was asked this question on Meet the Press by moderator Chuck Todd. Mark Cuban. Uh, yes. I yes. Uh, did an uh, interview with him uh, uh, earlier. He expressed serious interest. If you called him up and said, uh, I want to vet you to be my running mate, he'd listen. What do you say to that? Now, sometimes on talk show karaoke, we bring it up because it's a stupid question. We want to shame the questioner. Sometimes it's because, oh, there's a better, more factual answer. This is just pure wish fulfillment. Now, this answer that I'm about to give that Hillary should have given, if she'd given it, she definitely would win the election. She probably will anyway. But this would close the man gap right here. So, again, the question is. If you called him up and said, uh, I want to vet you to be my running mate, he'd listen. What do you say to that? Answer. Mark Cuban would consider me. Well, you know, given his track record of screwing up the Mavericks, screwing up the DeAndre Jordan signing, inking the erratic Rajon Rondo to a deal that had him shipping his number one pick to the Celtics this year. In fact, what were the Mavericks this year? A scrap heap for failed Northeast point guards? Raymond Felton, Deron Williams, Rajon Rondo. Listen, you think figuring out which side to back in Syria or whether to intervene in post-Qaddafi Libya is easy, and you can't even figure out a way to have Dirk Nowitzki retire with dignity? And by the way, Russell Westbrook is indeed a superstar. I'd make him a three-star general if the Army would allow it. So yeah, I'm glad, Chuck, that you landed an interview with a businessman best known for playing a businessman on an NBC-owned reality show. How's that going for America? So thanks, but no thanks. If, however, Theo Epstein is listening, I am interested. That's what Hillary should have said. Given. <laughs> Great job, Hillary. Yeah. Stefan, what is your tortuga? Well, we didn't get to this in our conversation with the uh, minor league baseball marketing guy, but there are uh, 232 minor league baseball teams by my count, 26 affiliated and independent leagues. And the question that we allude that I alluded to in our intro to uh, Afterballs is, do you think there are more teams named for flying creatures, birds or insects, or for fish or other sea creatures? And how many for each do you think there are? 232 <laughs> teams, how many fish, how many birds? Josh, what do you think? More fish or birds? I'd say definitely more birds. Mike? It's funny. We were in Central Park and we saw a Blue Jay, a Cardinal, and an Oriole. And I asked my kids, what do those have in common? And uh, 
They knew, but then my youngest said, what about marlins? That's also a bird, and it's not a bird. But just based on that <laughs> three-to-one ratio, I'm going to say birds. Birds is correct. There are 22 water-based animals, 10% of the minor league total, versus 29 air-based creatures, 12.5%. So 51 of the 232 minor league team nicknames, 22% swim or fly. That seems like a lot to me, though it should be said that as a percentage of species of birds and fish, it's really not. There are 10,637 extant species on the International Ornithological Congress World Bird List, but that's nothing compared to the 120,000 or so crustaceans, mollusks, and fish tallied in the 2010 Census of Marine Life. Now, we don't have time. The (laughs) Census of Marine Life, they went door to door. Uh, We don't have time to analyze birds and fish. Birds won the count. Let's stick with the birds. The first team alphabetically with a bird nickname is the Aberdeen Ironbirds. There is no bird. There's no iron bird. The team is nicknamed that because Cal Ripken was the Iron Man and the Orioles, his team, are in fact birds. So we start with a bullshit bird nickname, but it's a bird nickname, right? I'm going to give the Akron rubber ducks the nod, even though the duck is made of rubber. Blue Jays, hawks, the Burlington bees, and the Columbia fireflies, very nice. The Delmarva shorebirds are boring. I love the Idaho Falls chuckers. The chucker is a grayish-brown Eurasian partridge introduced as a game bird into arid, mountainous regions of the western United States, according to Merriam-Webster. Yes, let's name a team for a bird that we've brought to kill. Lancaster jethawks, another bullshit smooshed-together word. No such thing as a jethawk, but a hawk is a hawk. I really like the Missoula osprey. Some people say osprey. Uh, I'm partial to any pelicans, of course. Myrtle Beach, in this case. The Nuevo Laredo owls with an S. And there's the Orem owls with a Z. Ugh. Oh, God. The Z is just awful. Los Pericos de Puebla of the Mexican League. The Puebla parrots. Like it in both languages. We talked about the flying squirrels. It is a squirrel, but it does fly. Very sentimental for the Sioux Falls Canaries. They were a charter franchise in the Independent Northern League. For years, I had a Canaries hat that I bought during my summer reporting my book about the league. The Sugarland Skeeters, good name, a little bit contrived. Toledo Mud Hens, old but very solid. A Mud Hen is, in fact, a bird. It's a, a marsh bird with short wings and long legs that inhabits swamps or marshes. Finally, the Trois Rivières, L'Aigle, the French Eagle, and there's a Red Eagles of Veracruz, too. All right, so my final four are the Idaho Falls Chuckers, the Missoula Osprey, the Columbia Fireflies, because I think you need an insect, and the Canaries or the Flying Squirrels. Canaries, Flying Squirrels. I'm going to go with the Flying Squirrels. It's creative, and it's one of those newfangled names like we discussed. I looked at that world bird list, though, and there are a lot of birds that definitely deserve to have teams. So even though I said there are too many bird teams, I'm going to revise that now because there are some really good unused bird names. The Undulated Tinamous, the Dwarf Mm. Cassowaries... The Northern mm. or Southern Screamers, the Canvasbacks, the Smews, the Brush Turkeys, the Speckled Chachalacas. And this, oh. one com- this one comes with its own home already appended to the bird name, the Tibetan Snowcocks. And I think mm. Snowcock actually was one of the groinal euphemisms that Tom Haberstrow used in his ESPN piece. Uh, finally, I want to mention one extinct bird team. Not that the bird is extinct, the team is extinct. The Thunder Bay Whiskey Jacks. They were also in the Northern League when I wrote my book, but they only lasted a few seasons. The Whiskey Jack is a Canadian J. Obviously, it's a great name. But the team's colors were purple and teal, which were very hot marketing colors in the 1990s. The, 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 the bird itself is gray. 
So I asked the owner of the Whiskey Jacks, Ricky May, why he picked purple and teal. And here's what he said. And, and it, it brought me great joy to reread this quote last night. It didn't matter if we were the goats. We were going to be the teal and purple goats. The goats. The yard goats. Ricky May was so ahead of his time. I was thinking of this as I noted that the Oriole, there is a Baltimore Oriole. That is the only sports team I know where the nickname of the team is also, also the place name. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe I'm wrong uh, insofar as, you know, there is no... There could be, a Tibetan, there could be a Tibetan snowcocks. Yeah, there is no sno- yeah. in, in, <laughs> in Tibet, you know. All right, Josh, what's your Tortuga? Did you ever come across uh, Chris Vondere? Uh, in your Northern League studies. He's the owner of the St. Louis Browns in the 19th century, sort of a predecessor to Bill Vec. I was reading an article in Sabre, the Society of American Baseball Research Journal by Richard Ingenreiter, Chris Vonderay, baseball's pioneering huckster. And this guy was awesome. He was a German immigrant saloon owner who there's a, a story also I found in Sports Illustrated by William Oscar Johnson, Sports and Suds, the beer business and the sports world have brewed up a potent partnership. It seems like this guy bought the St. Louis Browns baseball team in 1880, the St. Louis uh, Brown stockings, because I'm quoting from the story. He noted that his saloon did particularly good business when the St. Louis Brown stockings were in town, and he decided he should sell beer direct to the fans at the game. So he bought a piece of the Browns so he could sell beer inside the park. You think that, uh, you know, the baseball is, it comes first, then the beer second. No, the beer should always come first. The baseball is just a delivery system for the beer. So um, among other things that this guy did, let's, uh, let's enumerate them from the Sabre article. He installed a shoot the shoot in center field. An elevator took you to the top of a water slide. And the passenger was strapped in a boat by a nautically clad attendant. <laughs> As the passengers were about to take their plunge, they would be sent off by a women's silver cornet band that mm-hmm. Chris Vondere hired for general entertainment. The Sporting News satirized the shoot the shoot with a cartoon in which Chris was portrayed as a ship's captain with the boat taking its plunge. The cartoon was an apt analogy to the sinking fortunes of the Browns. Attraction number two, again, reciting from the Sabre article. He brought a Wild West show to Sportsman's Park featuring 50 Indians and 40 cowboys and cowgirls. Dan Snyder, you know, this guy is a man after your own heart. The Indians were full-blooded Sioux who he rented from the government at the rate of $12 a month each. When doubts of the Indians' authenticity reached Chris's ears, he was furious. I should pay an actor feller $50 a month when I can get squaws Bucks and a real Indian chief at $12 a head. Great guy. <laughs> After the 1895 season, he took his show on a Southern tour, but was crestfallen when it did not produce the desired profit. Undeterred, he continued to expand his ballpark enterprise and build it as the Coney Island of the West. Item number three, attraction number three via the Sabre article, a one-third mile racetrack inside the park that he leased to a promoter. The Sporting News decried the electrically illuminated pony track as an assault on baseball's integrity. He was warned that he violated the league's constitution. And now let's fast forward in the article, and I read again from 
the saber piece. In less than a decade, the mighty Browns fell from contender to doormat. The pony track, shoot the shoot, water hazard, and fly-by-night sideshows took their toll on the condition of the playing field. Scores had difficulty determining hits from errors because the pockmarked infield fell into disrepair. Losing interest in baseball, Fondere concentrated only on making money to pay his mounting debts. And there's so much more. He married uh, a woman who Saber characterizes as a gold digger. Poor Chris Fondere. You can read the rest of the story at Saber.org. Richard Ingenreather, Chris Fondere, baseball's pioneering huckster. Bill Vett gets a lot of credit. Yeah. This guy was, uh, was his inspiration. Whenever right. you find a pioneering huckster, there is a pre-pioneer to that huckster. <laughs> it's not true with all walks of life, but with hucksterism in America, there's always a huckster before the huckster. So we have a special... There's not an er-huckster. All right, we have a special bonus after ball for you guys today. Our intern, Julia Karen, has been with us this year, and it's her last week, and she has a tortuga for all of us. Way to go, Julia. Julia, mm. what is your tortuga? So one of the topics we've discussed during my time as an intern on this show has been how women's sports leagues can hold their own. Is there a market that exists for these leagues? Do they compensate players appropriately? We've mostly focused on the WNBA and the National Women's Soccer League, and with good reason. They're the most visible showcases of quality women's sports. But we should also pay attention to the National Women's Hockey League. Founded by former Northeastern University player Danny Ryland in April of 2015, it has departed from its predecessors like their original and now defunct National Women's Hockey League, which has no connection to this new league with the same name, and the still operational Canadian Women's Hockey League by paying its players. The league's four teams, the Buffalo Buttes, the Boston Pride, the Connecticut Whale, and the New York Riveters each have a salary cap of $250,000. This money comes from tickets, sponsors such as Dunkin' Donuts, and through the NWHL Foundation, the league's charitable arm that spreads the gospel of women's hockey via grassroots initiatives. Player salaries can also be boosted by individual jersey sales, and some national governing bodies, including USA Hockey and Hockey Canada, provide an additional stipend, similar to how U.S. soccer subsidizes the salaries of players in the NWSL. The NWHL has managed to poach some of the world's best players from the CWHL, such as U.S. Olympians Hillary Knight and Megan Duggan. The majority of the U.S. women's national team now plays in the NWHL, as do a few elite players from abroad, such as Austrian national team member Janine Weber, Russian national team sniper Yekaterina Smolenseva, and goalie Nana Fujimoto of Japan. Kelly Babstock, who plays for the Connecticut Whale, explained in an interview with Puck Daddy's Greg Wyshynski that while her stipend isn't a ton of money, quote, it's a start for women's hockey, and I wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to inspire girls who want to play professionally. When Josh, Stefan, and Mike spoke with Allie Krieger at the DC Live show, they talked about how a women's league having a relationship with men's teams or leagues has its pluses and minuses. So far, with regard to the NHL and NWHL, it's mostly been minuses. Last December 31st, the NWHL had its own version of the Winter Classic, an outdoor game played in tandem with the NHL's own Winter Classic at Gillette Stadium. It was pretty much a disaster. The game wasn't officially announced until three days before it took place. It wasn't broadcast on TV. The ice was in terrible condition, and USA Hockey didn't allow U.S. national team players to participate since the game took place on the last day of a World Championships training camp. Worst of all, Denna Lang, a player for the Boston Pride, crashed into the boards and suffered a serious spinal cord injury. In January, the New York Post reported that the NHL was expecting a lawsuit from Lang, alleging that the ice wasn't in playable condition. 
But a few days later, the Post said that Lang had decided not to sue and that the NHL's Boston Bruins announced they would donate $200,000 to help her rehab. Despite that donation, everything that happened at the Winter Classic made it clear that the NHL doesn't really care about women's hockey. So, the NWHL's continued existence is going to depend on fan support. The league's website, nwhl.co, not nwhl.com, or you will get Northwest heavy lifting, provides a free live stream aptly named Cross Ice Pass for every game, though there is a donation link on the page in case you want to give them some cash. If you want to go in person, tickets cost $20 for an individual game or $125 for a pack of nine home games. It's a pretty good deal. Historically, women's hockey players had one path if they wanted to continue to play past high school, attend a Division I university, and get a spot on their country's national team. It could never be a real job. The NWHL's inaugural season has left many questions. Will it eventually merge with the CWHL? Will there be an expansion out of the safe hockey market in the Northeast? Will the league ever get a television contract? No matter those answers, I'll be watching. You should too. Thank you, Julia. And those nicknames, uh, seems like the Connecticut Whale, it's, it'll make Hartford Whalers fans not miss their team as much because exactly. it's kind of the same. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the Buttes, it sounds or, like. Uh, or not miss the Yard Goats as much. <laughs> The Buttes, it's like uh, one of those like League of Their Own, like Rockford Peaches style uh, nicknames. Like what they've got going there. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Please subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern is Julia Karen. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zombo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.